Hey everybody, Mark DeSalvo here and welcome to the DeSalvo Performance Hour. Thank you for downloading another episode. So today's interview was the first interview I've been forced to do like this. Uh, normally, I would like to sit down with people, I have them into the studio, or I go to them and I love to just kind of do interviews, get to sit and talk and hang out with people for a few hours. Uh, there's a natural good energy to that. And uh, this is actually something I had wanted to do with this particular guest. but. With recent events between you know everyone being forced to stay at home, um, that really didn't seem like it was going to be in the cards for quite a while. So um, you're going to be hearing a lot of episodes coming up, hopefully, with some really great guests where we're going to be doing these remote recordings. And uh, every time we're going to try to upgrade the capabilities, do a little bit better with them. But today, uh, we're really going to kick this one off with a bang. Uh, my guest today is somebody who has become a good friend of mine in the industry, um, a great teacher as well. He's a, a world record holding uh, power lifter, a former world record holder. Um, he's a, a great strength and conditioning coach in his own right, worked with athletes across many sports. Uh, he's now the owner of uh, his own equipment line. He makes belt squats, uh, good morning machines, some really great equipment, uh, things that I actually got to use recently when I was in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, this was just a really great conversation where I got to learn things about him that I didn't actually know. Um, he's one of these guys that's intersected with a lot of the kind of all-time greats in strength sports and coaching. Um, so he's got great stories. So anyway, people, I hope you enjoy it. I can only be talking about the one, the only Matt Winning. All right. So yeah, let's get into it. So um so Matt, thanks for thanks for being here today. Um, yeah. So this podcast I started about six months ago, and one of the things I like to kind of ask a lot of people about is kind of how they came. It's particularly with people who have been successful in whatever it is they do. Uh, I like to kind of figure out sort of how they think about things, how they think about problems, how they think about moving forward. Um, and one thing that always really attracted me to your style of training and your philosophy on health, fitness and strength training is at the core of it, there's health and sustainability. Like that's, that's huge because yes. you don't see that a lot. I mean, at least you, no. you see it from a handful of people, but not, not in mass. Um, yeah. What, what um, I should say, like what, what caused you to prioritize that or where did that come from? Yeah. Well, it was pretty simple. So when I was a kid coming up, you know, I, I had some gifts in the bench press, but it took me a long time to be good at deadlifts and squats. Mm -hmm. And um, I ran into a couple of all-time world record holder guys, uh, namely Ed Cohen and Larry Pacifico, two of probably, if you're to count world championship titles, probably two of the best powerlifters to ever live. Right. And um, they came up to me and said, you know, hey, you can be you can be a world record holder if you can train hard for the next 10 or 15 years. So they knew that I wasn't going to be that strong right out of the box. Right. You know, like some of these other guys, they, they knew that it was going to take me a lot of time and patience to get better. Right. So I knew that to last 10 or 15 years to get up to world record numbers, I was going to have to do it really smart and stay in it for the long game. And that's where all of my training philosophy came into, okay, I can do this exercise today, but if it doesn't help me tomorrow, I don't want to do it. So I started to create a philosophy of longevity because I knew that, there were going to be a lot of other guys. I mean, like say for instance, in my 26 year, you know, career of competing, I'll bet you I ran into 15 to 20 guys that were better than me physically, mm -hmm. but they weren't able to outlast me. So I got stronger than they were. Right. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. I was one of those guys that didn't have, 
I mean, you know, it's saying it's crazy because I have records, but it's, I didn't have the genetics to be that strong. I had the smarts to get that strong with enough genetic potential that allowed me to do it as well. But the point was, is that I had to work longer and smarter than a lot of the other people to get that good uh, because I just didn't have the genetic freak freakiness that some of the other dudes had. So um, my, my game was always about longevity and understanding that if I wanted to get up to the best I could be, I was going to have to take the long road because a short road wasn't going to allot me to do that. Right. Right. That's really cool. I mean, that's that, that it, it kind of came from the start because you had advice from two greats that, that gave it to you like that. Yeah. Do you find that, um, you know, I, I know like in a lot of combat sports, for instance, there is amongst kind of people who understand sort of the developmental progress of, of a fighter, they'll often see that like what you'll see is that it'll those years that it takes to get you pro and to get you good enough to compete. Like the, if you, they're not done right, they take everything out of you and you can have like the shortest run as a pro. Is that something that happens in powerlifting a lot? Oh, I think it probably happens. It probably happens worse in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say, I'll say this why, like I said, I don't have any direct experience. I've played around with some fighters before, but I'll tell you what the difference is, is that most people at the world-class level that are attracted to powerlifting are immensely good, immensely fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in fighting, especially MMA, you have to be so good at so many different types of fighting. Like right. you can't just be a good stand-up guy. You can't just be a good ground guy. You got to have so many other skills that I think that fighters tend to have a little bit of a longer career based on the fact they have to be good at many more things. Right. Whereas in powerlifting, yes, at the top level, it's complex, but at the end of the day, it's a barbell and weights and you lift it one way. Right. Um, now I don't train that way, but my point is, is the outcome is the same where versus in fighting, everything can be different. Every fight, you know, it's, you might have some similarities, but in reality, you know, one fight could be almost all ground. One fight could be almost all stand up. Right. You know, the squat bar is still going to be the squat bar. So I find that powerlifting is actually worse in what you're asking because of the fact that most people that are really good at it, they get good at being specifically good too fast. And then what ends up happening is it shortens their lifespan right. in the, in the career of the lifting because they don't have a big enough base to build the tight, the top of the pyramid, you know? Right. So that's what I found, you know, is that fighters tend to have to be good at more things. So um, it, it, it increases their longevity, so to speak, if they're trained properly. Right, right. Definitely. A, a lot of fighters, they have the opportunity to sort of evolve as their careers go on, too. They can sort of change their style to either take less damage or suit their, you know, their bodies at that point in time. But, yeah, I could see that being sure. not necessarily like a an option in powerlifting, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And I think a lot of the problem with powerlifting, unlike, unlike fighting is that people tend to get bigger to lift more weight and then eventually it becomes counterproductive because they become unhealthy. Right. Um, so what ends up happening is, is that, yeah, you might put on 20 pounds of body weight to raise your bench press, but eventually that weight's going to start weighing on your health and then your health goes backwards and then your strength goes backwards. Right. Right. So I think, weight classes in fighting, you know, you can't, there's nobody that's ever going to come out of MMA and weigh 300 pounds and be any good because at that weight, it's just nearly impossible to have that level of endurance. Right. Versus in powerlifting, you can weigh 350, 400 pounds because the output is very short and abrupt. But the problem is, is that if you weigh that much, then what's going to end up happening is you might be strong in your early to mid thirties, 
But then by the time you get to your late 30s, early 40s, your health has gone backwards and now your strength falters. So the problem with powerlifting, especially at the heavier weight classes, is you have to balance health with longevity and um, with heavy weighing heavier. And that's three things that don't really like to fall together. You know, I mean, when you're weighing 300 plus pounds and trying to lift maximal weights, your body is really running on empty as far as health is concerned. Right, right. And so on that similar topic, do you find, I mean, because I, a lot of people who listen to this are involved in combat sports or other coaches, or some people who are into powerlifting and strength sports, um, but for people who might not um, understand that, typically in powerlifting, and I'll have, I would like, love to hear your take on it because I have a lot of questions about training as it pertains to that too, but typically in powerlifting, people always seem to ask or say the bigger you are the better your leverage is maybe the stronger you get i mean these are just general statements these aren't necessarily true could you comment sure. on any of these or like i know you just said that some of sometimes when people get too big the health falters and the strength falters but like where do you usually like how, how does that conversation with an athlete or yourself go yeah. like how big is too big when do you need to get bigger yeah where do you find the tipping point um, the big, the big thing that I've always been told is you have to, um, raise your body weight as your bench press rises. And then once your deadlift starts to fall out, that's when you know your weight has become too high. Um, because then you get too thick in the midsection, you can't lean over to pick up the bar as easily. And now you're in a bad position on the deadlift. Um, I always fought that based on the fact that I was naturally a good bencher with shorter arms. Um, so my bench always came up easier than the other lifts. But then the deadlift, um, as I got bigger and thicker, because I already had shorter arms, it always made it a pain in the ass. So, um, right. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the hard part is, is that you, for most athletes, I wouldn't look at it as a body weight per example, per se. I'd look at it as a body fat percentage. Mm. Um, you know, if you get a guy that can put on 20 more pounds, but he only puts on a quarter of a percent body fat, he probably needed to weigh that much. You know, versus in powerlifting, it doesn't matter your body fat. So you have to find that tipping point. I would say that for for athletes, you're going to be wanting to look more at body fat percentage mm -hmm. um, and, and inflammation. And for and for powerlifters, you're going to want to look at when does the bench press no longer help the deadlift, right? As far as body weight's concerned, that's how I would say to look at it as a fighter or an athlete is if your body needs to gain weight, if you don't get slower and you don't really gain any body fat you probably need to weigh that for your sport. Right. Right. That sounds like a great rule of thumb. Yeah. So, Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's the end all be all because, you know, everybody has different limitations, but you know, that, that would be what I would say is, you know, as an athlete focus more on body fat percentage and as a power lifter focus more on what does it do to the other lifts? So if my bench press goes up 20, but my deadlift falls 50, then my body weight that I put on probably wasn't conducive for getting stronger. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and a lot of times too, it's, it, I feel like powerlifting and fighting are opposite. Fighters never like to eat enough. Powerlifters <laughs> seem to always want to eat more. So Yeah, yeah. When I think as we, we grow up, you know, or as you evolve in your own sport, you start to realize in the beginning that the more body weight you gain, the stronger you get. But then there's a tipping point versus in fighting, you gain 15 pounds and go into the ring for three rounds, you're going to feel that 15 pounds real fast versus in powerlifting. You don't ever feel the weight because you're only lifting something for maybe at most 10 seconds. So it's not like it's, 
the extra body weight's gonna gonna weigh down on your GPP or your physical preparedness much more so in a fighter, you're gonna have these uh, these extra body weight gains are definitely gonna change the cardiovascular realm of what you're doing because of the fact you're carrying extra weight for an extended period of time. Right, right. On that topic, while while we we're here, um, I'd love to get your opinion on even in a general athletic sense, maybe specific to fighters, um, as it or even as it relates to powerlifting on on GPP. So it's you know it's pretty well established in your protocols and a lot of other powerlifting protocols. Kind of what that means. Do you feel? Because I've heard people like Dave Tate say before that GPP for fighters or for certain athletes is the strength training because they get so much of the endurance already in their practice. Is that a way that you sort of look at your training or, or with other athletes? Cause I know you've worked with football players, special forces, um, all, all like yeah. all manner of, of bodies basically. See where I, where I differ for, in that statement would be the fact that I think that us as lifters and us as athletes and us as tactical professionals, whether it be special forces or firemen, what we need to really be focused on is our weaknesses and not categorizing things as fighting or lifting or this or that, right? If I got a fighter that comes in and he can, you know, walk at a fast pace at like 3.4 miles an hour with a hundred pound weight vest on for three hours, I probably don't need to have his GPP higher. But if he can't squat 185, then maybe I need to attack his maximal strength. So for me, the hard part is everybody wants to categorize things into fighting or lifting or this or that. I think what it really should be categorized in is where are my deficiencies and how do I raise those so that other things can shine? Because at the end of the day, you're only as good as your weakest link. And if GPP is your weak link, then yes, you need to train more of it. But if maximal strength, so I find that in powerlifting, maximal strength isn't the problem. It's more physical work capacity and the ability to create endurance and maintain health and fitness levels in order to still sustain a long career. I find in fighting in other sports and tactical special forces units is that their physical work capacity is really good, but their maximal strength and dynamic power is trash. So what they end up doing is they start to focus on the things they're good at because they like to ignore the things that they're deficient in. And that's us as human nature. You know, we're taught in school, let's go focus on, you know, what do you like and what are you good at? Let's focus on that. What we should be focusing on is our deficiencies, right? And that is a very big mental transition for most people, right? You know, you watch in fighting, if a guy is really good at stand-up, he's going to avoid everything at all costs to go to the ground. And a guy that's good to the ground is always going to try to get that guy to go to the ground versus being so well-rounded that you don't care where what part of the fight you're in, that's where you're going to be good at. And that's why you... You know, it's funny because you watch MMA and you listen to like, you know, when, um, oh, what's his name? Joe Rogan was doing a lot of the announcing and he's like, hey, you know, this fighter's really been working on his stand-up game now. So that's not a weakness. And he's he's more balanced of a fighter now. See, but you don't hear Powerlifters talking about that shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, hey, look, this guy's lost 6% body fat and now he's not going to be tired when he goes to the deadlift. And now he's going to be able to pull a big weight. The point is, is. I think instead of categorizing things into fighting and lifting and this and that, we categorize things into where are our deficiencies and what do we need to put most of our emphasis on? The key is that some things in our body need to go into maintenance phases while others go into building phases. And I was never afraid to do that. You know, if I felt like my rep strength was low, I worked on my reps. And if I felt like my 
max strength was low, I worked on my straining. And if I felt like my dynamic efforts needed more work, I put more emphasis on that. And the, the funny thing was, is having this transitional thought process allowed me to have a way longer career with little to no mileage. Because if I only focused on certain things at certain times or balanced them, then my body got a high all around full circle amounts of contraction types, therefore never completely wore out one particular area. Right. Where did that come from? I mean, where did you get that sort of perspective from? I mean, I know on my end, for instance, like when I was seeing certain things that weren't working, it was almost weirdly cosmic. That was when I met Charles Poliquin and he taught me about structural imbalance yeah. and these things like that. Uh-huh. Um, what caused you to sort of get that, um, come to these, uh, or figure these things out? Was it a lot of trial and error or? Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, for me, it was a ton of trial and error. I figured that out way before I met Charles. Um, you know, I, um, I looked at, I, I already figured that stuff out. So, but I figured it out the long way. I had been playing with that stuff since like 2013 and I met Charles in 2016. I hadn't completely dialed it all the way in yet, but long story short was, is that mine was just trial and error. And I was always open to when I mm-hmm. found something didn't work anymore. I would try something else until I could figure out the path. And sometimes it was a fast, quick fix. And other times it took years, but for me, it was pushing the envelope of my own physical capabilities. And that's why I think, for strength coaches in general, I don't think you have to be a world record holder. I don't think you have to be the best in the world, but you definitely have to push your own boundaries because half of the shit that I learned, I learned from trying to get stronger myself. Right. When you've maxed out sleep and you've maxed out nutrition and you've maxed out what you know in training, now you can truly play around with variables and understand what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, as well as I do, when you train other people, you just can't control variables. So, how do you know that it's the training cycle that got better, right? How do you know that, um, how do you know that unless you're controlling yourself first? So yes, it's a small sample size, but at the end of the day, I think what gave me all this knowledge was I would figure something out in the gym and then go look for a book that said something about it. I didn't do it the other way around. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And then I felt like I had both ends of the spectrum of knowledge. I had the experience and the education. Right, right. And speaking of the education, I know you you have a master's degree is from Ball State, correct? Yeah. No, that's that's what that's when Dr. William Kramer and Dr. Costell and a lot of the pioneers of strength conditioning research were still at Ball State at one time. When I went to school there, it was a juggernaut of information. I mean, I don't think that any place has ever been that high level of putting out strength and research papers ever. So from 1996 to like 2004, Ball State was putting out papers literally left and right about strength training and recovery and biomechanics and all this stuff. They had all the all the right people in the right place at the right time. And the reason is because Ball State had contracts with NASA to study anti-gravity with astronauts. So they had an ass load of cash mm-hmm. that they were able to bring in a lot of the best professors all over the world. We had Dr. Kwan that invented motion analysis there. So you're talking about the guys and when they throw a baseball and it breaks down the vectors and all the pressures and all that he invented those original machines wow they could measure that with video so we had all these guys in one spot so i was by far and away one of the luckiest students ever and didn't even realize what i had you know at yeah the time. <laughs> that's crazy so i was gonna ask that was my next question is if you knew that that was going on and that's why you went or if you went just because well i did i did a little bit so my 
Long story short, my mom was in charge of surgery at the local hospital. She had another nurse that worked with her and her son was about five, six years older than me. And he was an accountant for the Colts. So the Indianapolis Colts, uh, he was an accountant for, and he knew the head strength coach. His name was John Torrey. And I didn't, I was from a small town. So I didn't realize that these big football schools had strength coaches. I mean, the only people I'd ever seen train anybody with weights was like personal trainers at the Y. So I had no clue that that was even a job profession. So he gets me down there to do a job shadow for a couple of days. And John Torine is the one that tells me that Ball State's one of the top schools in the world for strength conditioning. I'm like, holy shit, that's three minutes from my house. Yeah. (laughs) So that's where it started. But I had no clue that Ball State was heavily ranked and had all these great professors at one time. I had no idea. Right. Wow. That's crazy. That's pretty cool. But you got to remember, this was before the time of the internet. So where were you going to go look that up and find that out? You know what I mean? I mean, that's the thing is like, you just wouldn't have known. It's not like today where you could type in Ball State Exercise Science and it would pop up world renowned for this, this and this. You would have no idea. So exactly. Yeah. That reminds me too of a, in some ways of a story you told uh, last year at the Arnold when you did the longevity seminar with uh, Heath Evans yeah. and well, almost Michael. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you told the story about how you went at some point and please jump in at any point you went in to go see Ed Cohn. It might've been the first time you met him. And he said to you, if you want to, you asked him like, how would I how do I be like you essentially? How do I get to this point? And he said, you're going to have to set up your life also to be conducive to it. And you had said something like he had owned condos and rented them out. So really all he had to do was train and do some basic management each day. Um, I guess where I was going with that was, um, was that something that you sort of uh, aspired to like from an early or, or the reason I asked that is because, you know, people typically get out of college, they've got to go work, they got to go work hard. Um, you know, it's not always conducive to to great training right away, unless you're really disciplined. Um, what was 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 Ed sort of your model, like coming out of college? Or what was your goal sort of when you got to that point? My goal was is that I was going to put in as much time as I needed to graduate with my master's degree, because I knew that would set up my future, or at least help my future. After that point, I told myself from 25 to 30, I was going to focus on nothing but being the strongest guy in the world. And I didn't care if that meant that I wasn't going to make enough money, if I wasn't going to have some of the things I just, I wasn't going to have, you know, like a new car or a, a nice house. I said that from 25 to 30, this is going to be my lifestyle is going to be just getting strong as shit. And actually what I felt like I was doing was I knew that I wanted to be a strength coach at a high level down the road, but I felt like this was going to ensure that I had the street credit and gain the respect of anybody that I trained because I felt like if I'm not going to put myself into the gauntlet a hundred miles an hour and keep in mind, I already had a ton of USAPL uh, national and American records. So I was already for most people, I could have stopped and had more national, more accolades than most people in lifting. My thought process was I wanted to show people that an average guy from Indiana that came from basically white trash and could, could step up to the ranks and be one of the top lifters in the world but I had to do it smart. So my thought process was I needed to be the strongest guy in the world so that down the road I had the street credit. And that was my thought process. So what I did was I took jobs that worked around my training protocol and I didn't care how much I made till I was 30 because I thought, well, 
if I have the master's degree and I have the records at the highest level, there's no other way I can improve my chances of being one of the best in the world at my profession. So the problem was, is that I went kind of into the monk situation of all I cared about was getting strong and experimenting on myself and the small amount of people that I was training. And then I could, I could gain a grasp of what I needed. So with that being in mind, I think what Eddie really drove home to me was the fact that if I wanted to be a great lifter, it wasn't about what I was going to put into the gym. It's what was I going to do the other 23 hours, 22 hours a day. So what I decided was is that my sleep revolved around training, my eating revolved around training, and my stress levels revolved around training, meaning that if something was too stressful, i.e. a relationship or maybe I was in a, let's say, a, like a family feud with my uncle, I just wouldn't go to fucking Christmas because I didn't, to me, it was like, I'm going to focus on what was important to me at that time. And I missed out on a lot of a lot of stuff with family and friends that I probably, looking back, I probably should not have done. But at that time, it was the only way I knew how to deal with all that stuff is if something was a stressful situation, I just avoided it so it didn't affect my training. Um, and so that's what Ed Cohen really drilled into my head is if anything affects your training, cut it loose. So that way you can be the best you can be because in reality, you only have, no matter when you start, you only have maybe, if you're lucky, a 15-year window physically of being able to do insane things. And after that point, it's too late. No matter how smart you train, you're not going to be the person at 30 that you are at 45. You know, you might still be able to be strong, but to compete against the top in the world, you got a small window, you know. So for me, I never wanted to look back at 45 and be like, oh, look at me. I have a nice house and I'm super successful. But all of my late 20s and early 30s, I dedicated towards a job versus seeing what I was physically capable of. To me, it wasn't worth it. I knew that I could make money when I can't physically do what I can do when I'm 30. So for me, it was just kind of putting all the dominoes in the right effect to where I felt confident with myself. And not everybody has to follow that thought process or thought pattern. But just for me to have that feeling that I have now where I feel like I've accomplished what I've wanted to accomplish, um, that had to be done. So for a lot of people, they don't have that level of buy-in or that level of intensity. And I totally get it. I don't judge people for that. But for me to be satisfied with myself, I had to put myself into that position and give myself that level of um, responsibility to where when I turned 40, you know, last October, um, I felt like, man, I've really done what I set out to do and I'm, I'm comfortable. And there's a certain level of like a big relaxation breath I can let out every morning realizing that I I did everything I wanted to do and I left nothing in the tank. And I think a lot of people, when they get into their forties and fifties, they don't have that. They didn't sell completely the fuck out to do something as hard as they could do and see what they were accomplished of. And regardless of how far it gets you, at least, you know, you dropped everything you had and you gave everything you had to do it. And who cares how far you get? That's not the point. The point is, is that you sold out to yourself and now you can, for me, I can relax and put my energy into other people now. I don't have to be the strongest guy in the room anymore because I did that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think that's so, a really, that's, oh, thank you for sharing that. Cause that's, I think a really uh, awesome perspective for a lot of people to hear because you hear a lot of people like preach the message of going and chasing and doing it, but you're somebody who really walked the walk. Like you really were able to do all those yeah, things. Yeah. And 
I, I think what's key too for a lot of younger guys is is having the faith just to go do that because some people won't you know 25 to 30 they're shitting their pants if they're not going for the best job they can but it's realizing that, that uh, that'll still be there for you at 30. You know, you can still go chase. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> by far. And you'll be ready for it at 30 because the average 25, 30 year old, if you give them a six figure job, they are going to waste that money on stupid shit. Oh yeah. You and I both know you're if, if you're making a hundred thousand a year, you're going to go buy a brand new car every year. You're yeah. going to buy a house you probably can't afford. And now you're a slave to the money. Yeah. So I'd like people to know that from the age of 25, graduating with a graduate degree and already having all these records, I was making 35 or 40,000 a year for the next six to eight years before I started making real money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I really didn't start making a big money until I was 34, 35. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember that reminds me of a story when I was like 24, 25, I was, I had already been training jujitsu and I was like just, completely balls deep into going into learning all about fight sports, coaching and whatnot. And I remember I had to do file my taxes that year. And I went to like H&R Block because I didn't know anything about how to do it. I'd only been out of college for like a year or two. And the lady looked at my tax return. I think I made like $16,000 that year or something. And she was like, yeah, she looked at me. She's like, honey, you need to make more money. <laughs> I was like, I yeah. know. Yeah. Don't worry about taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, please don't lecture me on this now. I get it. <laughs> I'm, I'm broken, beat up, but I, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> you know, but yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's what happens is like you, you get your eyes on that prize. I think for you, uh, you had this really awesome convergence of, of, uh, like you said, that crazy luck of at ball state of having all those people there. Um, you know, you put yourself in the right situations to be around the right people to uh, kind of bring out the best training in you as well. Um, and and for me, like I, I know on my end, you know, I was lucky to intersect with a lot of great people in, in jujitsu, a lot of great people in strength and conditioning as well. And while I didn't necessarily chase like strongest guy in the world, baddest fighter in the world or anything like that, I, I knew from a young yeah. age, kind of like you did too, it sounds like, that you wanted to get into coaching, that I knew that I was going to do that. And, and that was around the time too, that I said, well, let me, there seemed to be, and this is where I feel really lucky that I intersected with Charles is that there was this sort of twilight generation of some of these great coaches who are sort of on their way out. And I was like, I need to go learn from these dudes. Like, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to, you know, go travel to them. And I'm very fortunate. I was able to do that with a lot of them. Um, and Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's really, it's really, it's really cool. So yeah, thanks for sharing all that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is I think people just think, you know, they see a guy like me and they're like, oh, this dude's a genetic freak, this guy, this and that, you know, I mean, you know, and a lot of other things too, is you got to remember sometimes people that have the best cards dealt to them in life don't end up doing shit with it. Right. You know, like I think having that hard chip on my shoulder of grinding and having to work my way up has given me a completely different perspective on not only my value, but also you know, my time and all this other stuff that, you know, I'm like, and the other thing is I don't put limitations on people. I'm like, look, if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's just, are you willing to step up or are you willing to lay down? I mean, and the problem with most people is, is their ego won't let them step out of boundaries. And that's where I think the training style that I've kind of learned from Louie and Vogelpool and, you know, all these great Russian and my old my old professors is the fact that I'm always looking for weak links. I'm always measuring myself in and not doing it in a negative way, but always looking for the shortcomings and trying to fix and match and repair those 
versus just trying to focus on my strengths and hide everything. So guess what? I don't have an ego. Right. Like if I pick a lift that crushes me with something I think I should have got 200 pounds more with, so what? That's been my whole life, my whole, you know, my whole thing. And I think that's really one of the big powers of training in the type of modalities and the ways that I do things is because you're always looking for weak links and you're always attacking the weak links. And when you think about your whole life perspective in that way, you're just a more rounded person, period. You know, I mean, that's the thing is like conjugate training is only as smart as the hand that wields it. And the reason is because most people don't want to find their weaknesses and attack them and be open with them. Right. And I've been that way with my career. So I think that's, what's really helped me out a ton. Absolutely. That's a very martial arts sort of way of looking at it too. That's why I've always kind of liked the conjugate system. That's why anytime I see the Eastern texts or I see something that Louis would write back in the day, I was like, what, what's, I knew it was about weaknesses. It was about sort of rounding yourself out more. And then like you just said, like being able to apply that to your life, that's even, that's even better, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that's why I like that cycle and that training modality is it's just really kept me honest with myself and kept me working hard toward things that are my deficiencies and uh, doing it that way, because that's what I do physically. So it's easier to do it mentally. But I find that a lot of people that I train, especially like fire departments and things like that, you find these guys can and sometimes do have these massive egos of like, I want to wear a uniform and I want to be a cop or I want to be a fireman or I want to be a military guy. But you really deep down, you want all of the benefits with none of the none of the work. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be super fit and be the strongest guy to show up on the scene. You want to slowly get fat and lazy and do all this other shit, you know? And like, that's the other thing is you got to be really careful with is like, you know, it sometimes an ego will stop you from doing the shit you need to be doing because you don't want to show anybody your weaknesses. You know what I mean? You don't want to show anybody that you can't bench anything or you can't deadlift any weight, you know, like, it's like it hurts your ego. But for me, I'm always looking for ways to hurt my ego. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, that's that's why I came to train with you guys is I'm like, well, I know I can do this stuff, but I'm not strong. So let me go. I want to get strong and I want to yeah, learn yeah. from people who think about things the way like I think about. And it's not even an ego thing. It's just I know that compatibility wise, it's there. That's why like I yeah. sought out you and Rob. Well, it's because you're you're like me. You will go out and seek people that have something you don't have, and you don't look at it as a downside. You look at it as an education process. You look at it as I'm going to make myself better by being around these people that are going to bring out my shortcomings. But you find that that's not a normal trait for most people. If you look at most people, they hide from shit they're bad at. They don't want people to see it. They don't, you know, and that's, that's a big problem in our society across the world is that we're not taught to accept our weaknesses and just work towards making them better. Right. Definitely. Did that philosophy come from, did you start adopting that sort of before you met Louie or before you kind of were, or how did you get introduced to like conjugate based training? I should ask. That's interesting. Um, so Powerlifting USA used to be a really big magazine from like the 70s all the way up into I think about 2009 is when I think it quit somewhere around there. And uh, I used to see these articles and I was keep in mind my first couple of Powerlifting USA's I was 16, 17 years old and I'm benching over 400 pounds. I'm one of the strongest guys ever in that high school. I have all the state records. So, you know, I'm king shit in town <laughs> and I start opening up these books and I read these these articles from a guy named Louie. And I start reading all this stuff on force and acceleration and 
triceps need to be stronger to bench press. When I grew up thinking the bench press was a pec exercise and, you know, your back needs to be stronger in order to press and all these things. And I'm like, holy shit, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about because he's talking about all these guys that can bench five and 600 pounds and I'm benching 400. And I'm thinking maybe there's something to this that I don't know versus going, oh, this guy's full of shit. Look at me, you know? So I was always intuitive to wanting to, my big thing was I just wanted to get better, period. And um, so I first met Louie right about the same time I started school. And I met him at the Arnold Classic. And uh, he was walking with Dave Tate and all the old old school guys. And I stopped him. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? You know, and it's kind of like stopping like Sonny from like the Hills of Angels. Like 20 of them were around. They were all super big, strong guys. And I had the balls to go up and say hi to him. And I go up and say hi to him. I'm like 19. And uh, I shake his hand. I'm like, hey, I'd like to come down and work out with you. And he asked me how strong I am. And he was fairly impressed with how strong I was with my age. And he's like, yeah, just come down sometime. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. Well, about, a, I'd say a couple weeks to a month later, I go down and I first train with them. And the thing of it was, was I was keeping up with those guys on some accessory stuff. So he thought, not, he knew those guys were stronger than me on max effort, but he didn't realize the work capacity I already had. So we were doing like dumbbell fold ends, right? On the ground. And we were using, or like kickbacks. And we were using like 75, 80 pound dumbbells. And I'm able to hang with these guys on this shit, right? So he's like, this dude's got some balls. So long story short, he hands me a bunch of old powerful USAs and copied articles. And I start reading them and I'm getting really infatuated with this knowledge. And I take it to Dr. Kramer at, at Ball State because I'm just starting school at the same time. And I throw it all to him and I'm like, dude, do you see the crazy shit this guy's doing? This is insane. And he kind of starts chuckling. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he's like, he hands me this uh-huh uh. so can you is it backwards or can you read it no i can read it yeah. so he hands me he hands me vladimir zatsiorsky's science and practice of strength training and flips it to the page of like i'd have to look and see but it's like like page 20 or page 30 or something and right. he flips to this page and he starts showing me muscle types of resistances they're talking about cords and shit and different kinds of cables and like um, strength curve, right? right. Then starts showing me like max effort method and dynamic method. And, I, and then I look at the, the cited articles in the book, 1960. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's from the Soviet Union in 1960. And he's like, dude, this shit ain't new. This is old. And I was like, right. no way. So he starts getting me all the old texts from Zatsiorsky himself. So Dr. Kramer was an associate professor with Vladimir Zatsiorsky at Penn State. So he calls over there and he says, hey, I got this lifter kid that is really interested in the old Soviet text. Can you send me over? So I was one of the first guys to have some of the original Verkashansky and Medvedev um, right. text translated and sent over so I could actually read them. Oh, that's awesome. And then I'm seeing all these citations from like the 60s and 70s. And I'm like, holy shit, this stuff isn't new. But to me, it was right. Right, right. Yeah. So that's when I really that's when I really wanted to become a student of the game. Oh, that's awesome. And I remember this is really fucked up. So when I was in school, obviously we had some of the best professors, but they were they were really high up in the classes. So like if you were going to get Dr. Kramer, you at least had to be a senior. You know what I mean? Like you weren't right. going to take a base level class with Kramer. So I had these base level course instructors, right? 
and I'm in the first like 200 level of strength conditioning. And we get this assignment to write a one week program. And I write this conjugate program with dynamics and max efforts and all this crazy shit. I get a fucking B on it. I get a B (laughs) because it didn't follow the NSCA principles of how to train. Uh. Right. (laughs) So, so I, I go and tell Kramer and Kramer goes, who the fuck gave you a B on this? He looked at it and was like, 72 hour rule, like <laughs> optimal v- volume for fucking like speed work. Like, dude, I had, I, I figured it out and I got, right. I was so pissed. I was almost in tears. I got a B on it because I mean, I studied like 15 other books out of the classroom to right. learn how to do this. Right. Yeah. He goes to the associate professor that's under Kramer. He goes, you're going to take that B away from Matt and give him an A plus. Wow. And he goes, what? And he goes, do you realize that he has just basically learned how to how to do all the old Soviet concurrent conjugate training protocol and gave it to you in a fucking low level class. That guy had never even seen that shit before. <laughs> and that's when I knew I was in deep trouble. You know what I mean? So yeah, you stumbled on So the- Kramer signed off. So Kramer goes, listen, I want you to over this summer, this was like 2001. He goes, I want you to design me three or four 12 week programs of conjugate training for football, powerlifting, all kinds of stuff. And I want you to tell me why you're doing it. Show me how you're using chains, all these weight releasers. Cause he was, he was interested in it too, because he knew I was onto something. Right. And then I was seeing what we were doing over at Louie's place. And I was emulating some of that and explaining and then asking Louie and Chuck and George Halbert, like, why are we doing this? And, and they would explain to me the force curve and increasing acceleration and all this other stuff. They let me, I never took another uh, course again on, um, on program design at Ball State because they passed me as a sophomore. I didn't have to take any junior or senior classes on program design. I was automatically given an A. Wow. That's awesome. Which was pretty awesome. So they basically were letting me take, they were letting me take graduate level courses. And I didn't realize why until the last year Kramer comes up to me and goes, I've been working on going to UConn for the last three years and I wanted to make sure you were in some of my classes. So what he did was, is he set me up to the higher level graduate classes and then let them pass for the undergraduate level classes because he wanted me to have some connection with him before he left. Right. So he didn't know if the job was going to come that next year or the year after, but he was planning on moving to UConn. So he took me out of the, the small level classes and moved me up so when I was supposed to be taking one and 200 level classes, I was in like five and 600 level classes for program design and exercise physiology and wow. all this other stuff. Cause, cause he knew that whoever was going to take his place wasn't him. Right. You know what I mean? So he wanted me to have that, a lot of that knowledge. And then, um, so I, I was very fortunate to, but I mean, it all started from me bringing him papers that were way outside of the classroom, right. books that I was studying that he knew were available, but he didn't know that I knew they were around. Right. And I was bringing him around and already trying to emulate that shit. So for him, it was like, holy shit, I found a prodigy. You know what I right. mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found a guy that not only wants to learn how to get strong, but he wants to do it too. Right, right. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's something you and I talked about when I was at your gym recently too, was the that difference. There's the learning and then there's the doing and then there's the rare perps and that kind of gets both, you know, <laughs> it's the Venn diagram, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It's not common. No. And that's what's amazing too, that he also, I didn't really know that about Kramer. I didn't really know much about Kramer besides the famous things he wrote, but that's really interesting to hear that he was so, I don't want to say, I guess open-minded is the right word, but nurturing in that way too, that, you know, he recognized right away. Well, I think away. He, he was the same way. He came from Wisconsin. 
He got his, you know, his doctorate. He went to Penn State to work under Zatsiorski. And I think what happened was he created an open mind because Zatsiorski blew his fucking doors off with knowledge. Like, I think that Kramer probably went to Penn State thinking he knew quite a bit. And then once he went around, once he went around Zatsiorski and Zatsiorski started showing him all this Soviet training literature, I think he realized he didn't know shit. And it stepped him up and it made him realize there was so much more to learn and he kept learning versus boxing himself in and going, I don't need to learn that. I'm already smart enough. See, that's how a lot of people do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, um, do you, are you familiar with Dr. Alfredo Herrera, the weightlifting coach? I've heard it. I've heard his name. Yeah. So he was, he was Cuban born in the USSR and he was uh, educated in Moscow with all the Soviet sports scientists, cosmonaut scientists, everyone else. And he was then, and he worked with a lot of the weightlifting teams uh, in the Soviet Union, I think in the eighties. And then later on in like the late eighties was, you know, shipped back to Cuba to work with the Cuban um, national team in weightlifting. And this is all wow. under the USSR, obviously. But he, you know, got to train with all and learn from in these universities in Moscow from a lot of those great names, like while they were still in the Soviet Union. And um, yeah. and, and so Charles, I know, was a big fan of Herrera's and like they knew each other when Charles was still alive. And uh, yeah. I, last summer, it was really interesting, though. Like, so last summer I was I got to spend a weekend with him and he only speaks Spanish. So it was, you know, I had to have a translator. And uh, he was talking about how like it was sort of the same story. It's like you'd bring something to him like, hey, what do you think about training like this X, Y or Z? And he would laugh and he would say, let me see if I can find it. And he'd go on his laptop and he had all these old scanned papers from, you know, the 80s and 70s and whatever. And it, he was like, yeah, this was a study. We, we did this shit in 83. Uh, yeah, here, I'll tell you right now because <laughs> we already did that study. <laughs> Like whatever they're arguing uh-huh. about, like even even a lot of the like optimal training volumes for hypertrophy. He was like, yeah, we, we did a lot of that. And then he was showing me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're probably going to find this, you know, and uh, whatever. But uh-huh. yeah, but he was a, he was really interesting to learn from. I mean, he's still alive. He still um, writes a lot. It's in Spanish, so you have to get it translated. But um, it's uh, it's really interesting, though. Like he talked a lot about he taught me a lot about and, and the small group we were with about the like a lot of the differences that he found between the Russian athletes and the Latin American athletes. Um, the reason I was interested yeah. in it, because I'm not a weightlifter, but um, was because it's a weight class sport and the body compositions are much more similar to um, to fighting than like, you know, maybe powerlifting, yeah, yeah. for example. And, uh, sure. you know, so a lot of what he taught me about, you know, management of, you know, health and whatnot for weight class sports was, was gold, you know, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Huge, huge. I mean, that's, yeah. Especially when you're expending so much energy in a wrestling or fighting and you have to cut that amount of weight. I mean, it's one thing to cut water and cut all these electrolytes when you, when you got to lift something for a short period of time, it's another thing when you do that and you got to do something for like 10 minutes straight. Right. Exactly. Like it's crazy. Yeah, no, definitely. So that was why I was I was interested in learning from him, but too because he was somebody who, and and it's interesting because like the Soviet Union and a lot of the and and you would know this much better, but you know a lot of the investment they had in sports science, you know, it's so far it was it was, for the time it was so far ahead of in some ways where we're at now, and I feel like now yeah. maybe we're finally catching up a little bit, but now it's twenty twenty. Yeah, it's. It's wild. I mean, the reason, the real reason that happened was because 
the Soviet Union had so much pride in their system, their communistic system and their their state system, that they felt that the more medals that they won in the Olympics showed that their system was superior to a capitalistic system. Right. And so that's why they dumped so much money, time and effort is because they wanted to show on a world stage, look at us, we're more disciplined, we have our shit together better and we can beat you in all these different things. So they looked at it as we want more medals to show that our system's better than your system. And that's what caused the state to want to dump so much time, money, effort, and energy into the, um, the weightlifting and the things that had class sports yeah. because there's multiple medals to be won, you know? Yeah, exactly. I remember you mentioning that when I, uh, I think last year at your bench seminar, that's in which I found interesting too. Yeah. I remember one thing, Alfredo Herrera said too, that he was like, you know, he's like, another reason we were able to do so much of that too, is we had money and bodies. <laughs> he's like, we'll never have, he said, yeah. no, no country ever in the world will have the resources we had to do like the things no. we did, you know, and just carte blanche. No. You know? But if they would, if, yeah, if the, if, this, if the United States would have been able to take the Soviet control system and apply it here in the same time frame, we would have created better athletes because of our nutritional status. So basically, you know, pre-1955, everybody in America could eat and had decent money and there was a lot less stress involved with life versus the Soviets were doing this with people that were basically, you know, bums over here and made them, hey, you want a nice place to stay that's warm and you can get three meals a day, come in and train with us. And if you're good enough, you can stay. And for a lot of people don't realize that the Soviet, you know, when it's a, it's a different thing when you want to go in and train because you don't want to go and live in a place that doesn't have any heat in the winter. Yeah. You know, like they're just, they're just tougher. I mean, there's, there's a different reason over here. We train because, Oh, we think it'd be cool to be stronger than the next guy over there. They're like, if I don't do well, I'm not going to be able to eat and not have a nice place to stay. Right. I mean, there's a big difference in drive with that, you know, absolutely it's more yeah. survival based. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah, you can even listen to that on, uh, I remember when Joe Rogan was interviewing Yoel Romero from the UFC, because he, he was a Cuban wrestler. And that's what he said, the same thing. He's like, you, you got to have double dinner if you were on the top team for wrestling. So he's like, of course, I just kept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was pretty, uh, that was pretty interesting, but yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, man, I, I know uh, I, I've, I've kept you here for a while, so I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem, man. No problem. I got a, a vertical diet cookbook of things that I've been playing around with, with eating that makes it taste good and low calorie. And, you know, it's that way you can stick to the diet better. And then I've been working on a, an actual mini workout manual to raise work capacity and fix weaknesses. Oh, great. So that's awesome. on top of the normal workouts. So I've been hesitant to put that out because everybody wants to overdo that shit. But I'm hoping that if somebody reads this manual, they're going to understand the importance of mini workouts being very easy and more restorative in properties versus detrimental. So I've really been working on that, putting a lot of time into those things. So that this is kind of good for me in, in a certain sense that this quarantine is happening because it's forcing me to get a lot of projects knocked out. Yeah. That's awesome though, about the vertical diet um, cookbook. Is that something you want to get out in the next few weeks or? I'm going to try to have it done. I think by the end of the week, if I can. Um, and mostly what I'm doing is I'm just showing I'm just showing products that I found that taste good that you can add into the ground beef or you can substitute scallops for this and how to cook it and what to cook it with that can give you some of the same benefits with having a little bit more variety. 
Um, so it's not a huge conducive, like 300 page, this is exactly what you need to be doing kind of book. It's just more, look, you need the vertical diet download. You need to read this and be familiar with it. Now, this is some of the tweaks that I've made for it. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds really cool. And then I know you have the Patreon yeah. too, that people can, uh, can log on to if they yeah. want to get a more in-depth. Uh, yeah. So the Patreon basically is a, a place that people can go and be a subscriber to that goes way more in depth on knowledge. You get videos before we post them. Um, you get workout samples. So on the top tiers of the Patreon, I'm literally writing down my workouts verbatim and posting them and showing the order and why giving explanations of the exercises and why I selected this at what time um, showing um, at the top tiers, you guys get the stand efforting download is absolutely free and you're getting the manuals in chapters every month. Meaning that all the stuff that we charge for on the on the internet is stuff that you can have for free as a top tier member over time. And then we also have um, they also get discounts on equipment. They get discounts on manuals if they want the whole manuals. And we also have an ATP Labs discount code that goes only to Patreon channel that is saving them. If you're a decent supplement taking type person could save you upwards of a hundred to two hundred dollars a month being a fifty dollar a month subscriber. I mean there's no there's no downside to it, you know? So that's the big thing is um I created the channel initially because I wanted to help kids like Trey and things like that and and make them if I have a kid and a parent that's worthy, you know, a lot of these kids that I train, some of them are very disabled. And a lot of people don't realize that if you don't have kids or never had a kid with a medical problem, you probably wouldn't realize but, you know, a kid with a brain tumor that gets that removed and then gets spinal fusions, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these parents are, they're, they're skimming by to try to make it. And I don't want to have to charge them to train these kids. So I thought, well, what's a better way than to create a channel where people can pay me a small amount a month and ask me pretty much anything they want. And instead of me just answering stuff for free on Instagram, they can donate to the Patreon channel and help me train kids, you know? Right. No, that's great. I remember when you told me about that, I thought that was... Yeah, it's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a way to try to give back, you know, and try to try to help other people that may be less fortunate. And I think the problem that we have as athletes is that we look at ourselves. We're so locked in. We don't realize how fortunate we are to not have a medical problem or not have a, a real disability that allows us not to do or achieve things that we probably may want to achieve. And that's to me, I want to try to get Trey and another kids at least as good as I can get them you know, and do that based on the fact that other healthy people that want information that I bled for, they can do that for a small amount of mo a month. You know what I mean? Right. And help someone else out in the process. That's awesome. That's great. Exactly. Definitely. Awesome, man. So um, do you have anything else uh, you wanted to to say or plug while we're, we're still on air? <laughs> no, I think, I think that's awesome, man. I th I'm, I'm just glad that we're finally, hopefully get some good fighters on here to listen to this stuff. I think there's a lot of valuable information on working your weaknesses and understanding that everything's a 20, 23 hour, 24 hour a day process, you know, and, and a lot of times the big thing is, is for fighters and other athletes, sometimes, and often most times the real secret to you progressing and getting better is not in the facility. It's outside the facility, what you're eating, how you're sleeping, the stresses that you're staying away from. Those are going to be the things that actually make you shine. Absolutely. Matt, thank you very much yep. for being here. Um, All right, man, we'll see you. Definitely, yeah. So you guys can check out mattwinningstrength.com. Is that right? Yep, winningstrength.com. Yep, real Matt Winning on Instagram.